Technology continues to change and shape the way we interact with the world, ourselves, and one another. With the fast pace of tech, it can be challenging to understand its full effects on society. In Cut the Code podcast, join me in exploring topics and ideas centered around technology and humanity, discussing their cultural and ethical implications, and questioning some of tech's greatest unknowns. So the topic and style of this episode is quite different from previous episodes. Uh, While we aren't taking a deep dive into technology, we're going to focus on the impact technology is playing at the forefront of the most hated member of 2020, COVID-19. From the redesigned commute to work or school, to the technological breakthroughs and halts, this pandemic has made an impact on pretty much every aspect of our lives. This episode features my very first guest on the show, to my really good friends from school, David and Pranav. We start by talking about the corona commute and then go into conversation and discussion about various aspects of life, work, school, the environment, um, and just talk about some of our predictions of life after COVID. Fingers crossed on that one. Again, this is my very first time featuring guests, so all feedback and questions are highly encouraged. And just for context, our conversation happened before the election. But without further ado, here is our conversation. So what is the Corona Commute? For most people, it looks really different. But for the average nine to fivers, uh, it's the distance traveled between our beds to our desks. For those who walk or take public transportation, it's taking more precaution like wearing a mask. And for essential workers that drive to their workplace, it really hasn't changed aside from maybe facing less traffic, right? We don't really have rush hour. But with all these examples, we see that there's much less engagement, not only with other people, but also the infrastructure that supports commuting. So a lot of those kind of public resources, roads, bridges, those kind of things aren't really being utilized as much right now. And we're seeing some major changes with the way technology is changing the way we operate. Customers, right, they're seeing apps or websites being their primary point of contact with the business. So we've had to see some businesses like really radically transform from a digital standpoint and employees using video conferencing to hold meetings and conversations. I use this every day for work. And yeah, these things existed before COVID, but their demand and use has definitely blown up. And I think that the way we operate will not go back to the way things once were, right? It's not going to be a just flipped transition to how things were before uh, pre-pandemic, but there's gonna be kind of a new normal. And we see some various uh, mega trends throughout this time. And we have some predictions of our own and to kind of help us ease into talking about those predictions and the whole situation that's been going on. I have two amazing guests on my show. They're my really good friends, David and Pranav. They're both um, material science engineering majors uh, at Georgia Tech. David is an undergrad, he's killing it. And then Pranav is a master's student, he's also killing it. And I'm so glad for them to be on here. Let me just kind of give preface of like how I met them. We were actually in the Georgia Tech technology and management program together. It's kind of a uh, interdisciplinary program. We've been taught to give the pitch so many times, so I'm gonna save it for y'all. It's kind of full circle right now because we met as uh, third years in school and we worked on an assignment called the report from the future where we had to predict like how the urban commute would look like in 2025. And so we, we have some experience right with making some some predictions based on data. Interestingly enough, we predicted that Amazon would buy Lyft and we got kind of close. They bought Zooks. Thank you guys for being on. Um, I know you guys have been schooling from home. Yeah, uh, thanks for having us. School, school from home, I guess, mostly online classes is, it's it's pretty big adjustment. I don't know. It's just weird not walking from class to class and just, I think meeting people is the biggest change. Going into the semester, I think the people that I know, I'm not, I haven't met anyone new so far. And usually every year you see other people during your classes and you meet new people because you're going to different classes and seeing new people but now it's mainly just sticking to the people that i knew the circle friends that i had and not branching out much because there's really like very little opportunity to do so i think i assume david you have the same experience yeah 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that in all my classes that I've only talked to people who I already knew, I think that there's a lot less engagement in classes where before you could say, talk to your neighbor. Uh, that's now an impossible feat given the online scenario. And just the fact that no one really wants to be there almost. So like at least in class, the people who showed up cared about class. And now people can come to your computer, turn it on and then leave or just not pay attention and then rewatch recordings. So it gives less emphasis on being active in class, which kind of degrades from the entire experience, in my opinion. Uh, just to enumerate what Pranav was talking about, I checked my health app. And I used to walk like five miles a day and now I'm down to like two miles a day. So there is like a large portion of my day and my exercise I normally get just completely missing from that cycle. And most of that time I fill it with just not really doing anything. So I'm just less active overall. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. Because especially with tech being like 900 hills just put together walking like up and down you get a lot more tired at the end of the day it's a lot easier to sleep but now like activity is just so much lower and for me it, it, it affects my sleep and especially my sleep schedule has been shifted weirdly because i don't have to you know wake up early to get ready to go to class i can just kind of set an alarm for a couple minutes beforehand log on and if, if you really want to just go back to sleep while <laughs> while you're logged into class and like david said the participation is kind of degraded as well because especially if the teacher wants or the professor wants a discussion it's just not good uh online because they they'll ask a question and no one will say anything and then they'll just kind of keep moving forward whereas in class people i guess kind of felt that pressure to participate and have a meaningful discussion so it's it's definitely interesting yeah i totally feel those things especially with like staying active like you have to put in way more effort and like consciously remind yourself, okay, I have to like, I've been at my desk. You don't even know how time flies by, right? Like you've, before you know it, you've been at your desk for like two, three hours, haven't gotten up. And I don't even want to check my health app. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm like under a mile uh, on average every day, which is awful. But uh, yeah, I totally feel you on that. And and it makes me really feel for the freshmen right now, um, really feeling for the seniors right now uh, who probably estimated that like, okay, their junior year spring, that was gone, right? But they'll have their senior year at least. Not the case, really sucks. Um, and especially for schools that made the decision to uh, have face-to-face -face classes, it, that's just a whole nother kind of area of risk and people were freaking out in the beginning. And I think now it's starting to like, we've come to terms with it, uh, but that doesn't really stop the, the crisis that's going on. But speaking of like this kind of uh, digital, right? We're just surrounded, right? All the time, like, okay, you got Google Calendar, Google Hangouts. Yeah, every, I'm sure everyone has like at least two to three different uh, video conferencing apps on their computer yeah. or their phones, right? Like no one uses kind of the same thing. Uh, you got Zoom, you got Sys Webex, you got, we got Georgia Tech has Blue Jeans. Which nobody else uses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Literally no one else uses it. And then we have like companies with um, embedded uh, video conferencing in their in their platforms like Teams. Uh, I know it's used a lot for research, right? Microsoft Teams. Um, and then like Slack has also video conferencing. Those things have been around, but now they're just everyone. I know like from a a software engineering perspective it's like all hands on deck on those like various products like everyone's trying to push in the new features everyone's trying to make sure that the um like video quality audio quality it's seamless and making it better so we can get that experience as you would face-to-face -face, like discussions but uh speaking of like like work from home school from home uh you know one kind of idea that i have and a lot of people have is this idea of like work from home forever. And it's so, firstly, mm -hmm. I don't like it. I think it takes away a lot from the whole essence of like working and yeah. collaboration. Um, but if we look at like some current stats, right, there's 34% of American jobs that can be done from home. And some cities are definitely being hit harder by COVID layoffs than others, just due to the dominant industry in the area. You have like your urban commuters who can, um, you know, people who are like office typical jobs, they can probably work from home. But then if you have, you know, rural people who 
their their um uh like servers at restaurants or uh working at grocery stores they can't really have the same let me just sit at home and do my job right it requires a physical presence Mm -hmm. and then there's some like places that are kind of unreceptive to the whole work from home movement and you've got yeah you look at baton rouge las vegas yeah even scranton pennsylvania is being really hit hard by by covid and uh places with some of the most work from home jobs you look at the bay area san francisco austin uh dc metro area so it's all very unevenly distributed the whole work from home movement but it's here might be here to stay According to like a survey, part of an MIT study I saw, half of the workforce right now is work from home. And by the end of 2021, uh, 25 to 30% of the workforce will be work from home many days a week. So we look at some companies putting out surveys with their uh, employees internally saying, you know, how often do you see yourself coming back to the office when we do open up the office? So like now there's kind of more dialogue there with flexibility for work and allowing people to work from home more often, which has its pros and cons. And on average, employees say that they're 12% more productive work from home in the, than in the office when working alone. So like doing tasks that require them, maybe headphones on, just kind of focusing at their desk. But when it comes to, you know, collaboration type of work, meetings, discussions, planning, Employees say that they're equally productive at home versus in the office, but 26% say that they're more satisfied collaborating in person. Do you guys kind of fall into that category? Yeah, I think I agree with the satisfaction aspect of it. Like even for group projects right now, it's just so much more awkward looking at people over a webcam. Silences seem to last a lot longer. I feel a little bit less productive when everyone isn't in the same room because it's so easy to get distracted by your phone and just, I guess, hide it from people. You can just be not engaged at all uh, doing something else and seem like you're being part of the discussion. Uh, So I I think I do agree. It it seems a lot more satisfying to be in person, especially just having that daily social interaction with people a lot nicer. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that personally, I work from home just because I've made my home into the workspace that I want to be in. For example, some companies like make every single desk the same, so there is no property, right? You can set up anywhere. That's supposed to give like a more agile style of like having people just come and go, and like that's like a method to do it, and it makes it really easy to like accommodate more people. But it takes away from like, oh, I really like this one space because I don't have sun in my eyes and I have my monitors right where I want them, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that personally, I'm more productive from home because I've manufactured a space where I am most comfortable. But I would agree with Pranav where for group projects and other things that uh, being online makes it infinitely harder, uh, especially when we have to do prototypes or anything conveying an idea instead of just drawing it on a piece of paper in front of us is infinitely harder. And when you have just like a laptop and I'm trying to do it on my touchpad, there's no accuracy within my own drawing. So that was really hard when I was doing a design class this summer. But things like code, where I was working on a capstone where we were coding and we would just push each other, uh, just push it to the Git uh, hub. And then everybody just look at it. And then we comment through that which is just a lot easier. So different types of work are more suited for collaboration online versus offline. Uh, But I think that overall, you do have more interaction uh, when you are in the same place. And I think just like as a uh, society and as a collaboration group, it's much harder to instill a culture remotely than it is in person so when the culture is to ask questions and like like make sure everybody's paying attention and make sure everyone's like a value adder it's much harder to do that remotely when there's no one to like be around you and to show you how to do things or lead the way than when you are in person and you can take other people's leads onto how to act in a a situation yeah especially like i guess nikki you're experiencing this now and then david and i might in the near future starting a job remotely, not being able to be like, you're part of the team, but you're not like fully integrated yet. And it must be just super weird starting a job like like 3000 miles away from where you're supposed to be. Has it made like onboarding and stuff like that harder mm-hmm. or like less convenient or what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah. 
I want to really acknowledge what David said first, like about his whole workspace. Like yeah. that is, that's like way more powerful than I expected it to be, right? Customizing like your desk and stuff. I mean, in college, you're like in a dorm or in some like off campus or on campus, like housing that's dedicated towards like students. So they kind of have the same furniture and, and it's like very standard, right? But now there's more uh, room to customize. People have standing desks. Those people are like, those people are after it, right? Like they are getting the bag. They're waking up every day. They're getting the bag. I respect those. With the, they have their presets. It's amazing. Uh, the, the standing desk. Yeah. Onboarding. So there's like two kind of facets there. One, my team has made such like, a, I feel like they've made such a big effort, very thoughtful in terms of like me onboarding. A lot of them are like, you know, take it slow, take it easy learn everything as much as you can. You know, we have so many resources for you at the particular company I'm at. Every new hire gets a mentor. We've had like one-on-one sessions showing me things like specifically related to my team or about the company itself. So it's very, like people are very thoughtful and generous with their time, I think in this stage. But at the same time, like I do agree that there's almost it feels like a delay, right? You're waiting on the person to like respond to your chat, respond to your invite on like, okay, I'm free to hop on now, but maybe they're not free to hop on now. But like in person, you can create those like plans more quickly. And then also just Uh, you can pick up on so many unconscious things about how your team functions or like the job or role that you're in, right? So people, you see people who are like, they're coding on something and you can like right there see, you know, what what's their like config on their like, text editor and like copy that for you for yourself but now it's like okay now let me send you a screenshot of like all the all like the extensions i'm using things that like the productivity tools i'm using Mm -hmm. and like send to you an email or chat like it's there's more steps involved and and like unconsciously you you don't realize how much you learn until you i start a new job so i guess you guys will hit that when when you guys get to it but it's not, it's not impossible, right? It's, it's just, it just feels like you're slower in that, in that just in the beginning. If you look at our generation, the, the emergent younger workforce, like I think people are really open to remote work simply because, well, I think just most people want jobs right now um, with this whole unsettling situation of the, the pandemic and no one wants to be on unemployment and I think more than that, like you want to hone your craft and like be passionate about like whatever industry you're in day to day. So like, I think, yeah, like having a job right now, whether it's remote, I think people will take it and we're just more open to the idea of remote work. Generations older than us, like for them, like working is like getting up early, driving that commute, sitting at a desk in a tall building or maybe not so tall building, who knows, but and then coming back. But now it's like, you can roll out of bed, make the same bank. I don't know, like, is that is that something exciting? Does that sound exciting for us? Or are we kind of, you guys miss like the traditional model, I guess? Uh, I would say that just personally, I think that a lot of like job searches that I've done have been limited in scope to where they are geographically. So by opening up like where you can work from, it also opens up the possible companies I'd be interested in due to the fact that I'm no longer bounded by having to go into the office every day. So potentially, if I don't want to live in Atlanta after I graduate, but I really like companies in Atlanta, I can move somewhere where it's more favorable for me, like to be with my family, to do other things than to be like locked to a specific location where I'm not exactly happy. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good point. I think I kind of do miss the traditional model, I guess. Not necessarily like the nine to five grind, getting up early and going into an office and sitting at a desk, but just, I think mostly the social interaction aspect of it is something that I value a lot. I don't know why, I just kind of need it. If I'm by myself for too long, I feel like I just kind of fall into a rut, especially like with work. It just feels harder to motivate myself when I'm working from home, um, doing class at home. It's just so much easier to to like not do it and to get distracted instead. And I feel I'd be the same way with a job. I think the accountability there, I'm not as good as holding myself accountable to the work that I need to be doing when I'm on my own. And I think having supervisors there and other workers to kind of motivate me is something that I need. But I can definitely understand how just honestly eliminating the commute if you have a long commute is sounds so nice. 
instead of having to drive an hour each way, you can wake up uh, later, go to sleep a little later, just have more sleep in general. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of trade offs. But I think I prefer mm-hmm. being in an office. Yeah. Yeah. So if we if we look at the work from home model, right, like it's it's definitely more flexible and convenient for the most part. And uh, I think across the board, on average, it tends to pay more. Um, but one thing that's really you guys mentioned, especially David, with with the whole work from home setup is that I feel in a sense, more jobs are being created, right? If you have location as not much of a factor, if companies don't really care where their employees are located. Now you're saying that you can have someone who's in a suburban or rural area with, with the same job someone in the city can. And that right there, I think is such a cool gateway to open up conversations to break down barriers across the country to potentially even decrease income inequality between urban rural areas if you have software engineers this is just one occupation i'm you know having an example of both in la but then also maybe south dakota iowa right they're both working on very similar projects we start to build bridges on conceptual levels social levels instead of oh what am I going to have something in common with someone who is in Kansas, right? They're probably, you know, so these, there's a way, almost way we can start breaking down stereotypes when jobs are more evenly distributed yeah. and, and locations less of a factor. But do you guys kind of see that maybe being a potential avenue? I think that what you were saying about the basically the job opportunity equality, I don't think necessarily we're going to get more jobs overall. I think the distributions mm-hmm. of where people that have those jobs are going to grow. But I think the more interesting thing to think about is that I recently did some freelance work uh, with, like H- with an HR, but I won't say the company. But anyway, the way that HR factors in how much to pay is based off the cost of labor and the cost of living, right? So what's gonna happen, and I think we've already seen this, is that when people move away from high cost of living, it's basically a function of the two. So it's gonna be a lot stickier almost that if I live in San Francisco and I make 130K, I could move out to Kansas and make 80K, but the overall wealth income would be the same, potentially. I don't know the exact numbers. But so what this is gonna do is that it's not going to be like, oh, we're going to take people who make 150K in the city and move them to the rural, and then that way we have income equality. Rural will always have less income than city just because of density and land cost, in my opinion. So we're not ever going to see true equality, but we will see equity where they are making the same amount of money based off the cost of labor and cost of living, in my opinion. I could see that happening, just a little more diversity in terms of backgrounds, because I yeah, if you hire someone in a more rural area that isn't part of your typical demographic that you're hiring from, could increase the diversity of the groups you're having. So it definitely is a potential opportunity for mm-hmm. growth. So what about more on like a, let's talk less about finances, but more just about relatability, right? Do you think in that sense of like community, do you see that kind of growing across the board with with remote work? So I've done a lot of innovation work, and I think the largest thing is that they say that people with a whole new mindset bring so much more to the team than someone who's already been there for three years. Not that that person isn't valuable, but just because they would think against the grain. So I think that they would add diversity, right? But at the same time, people who live out in rural might not be as qualified due to just socioeconomic inequalities that are already in our system. So it's not like going to be overnight. Uh, a farmer in Kansas is going to be able to join a Facebook team, right? It's like we want to like increase diversity without sacrificing integrity, right? We don't want to just give people jobs just because they're different from us. Well, that's valuable. If they can't do the work, then it's not valuable overall. So I think the largest thing just in this is that maybe from work from home, the education could be more equalized across the nation where we don't have pockets of people who don't even finish high school, for example. And I think that would also drive, if rich people go out to the rural communities, they would want their kids to go to good schools. So there would be more money directed, even as bad as it sounds, but because there's richer people, there'll be more emphasis given on it. And after, and potentially that could spur change within our education system, which is already unfair as it is. 
And potentially with that, we could see that more diversity coming from different areas of the world. Yeah, I 1000% agree on that. And I think with the whole like arrangement of opportunities, I think that'll just further drive motivation, curiosity, perhaps like, right, like if, if you're growing up in Kansas, and you're like, oh, I can be working this like tech company, or I can be in this like, you know, just STEM in general. Well, if we look at the kind of work from home setup as well, there's there's cons and, and we're seeing this happening real time and, you know, local businesses who really rely on office workers and the urban commuter, you know, whether it's going out for like a lunch break or getting your getting your like haircut done, say in the middle of the day, right? Restaurants, salons, bars, those are yeah, grabbing a drink after work, they have been losing and they've been really hit hard with with work from home movement. That's what really breaks my heart. I think the whole like community, you don't realize so many other people are dependent on like you doing your commute. You don't, we don't realize until now the whole chain and the whole ecosystem. Yeah, there's so many, so many businesses that need people in there. And you see so many restaurants closing, especially like even around Georgia Tech's campus when I came back, it was like you said, it was heartbreaking to see like, oh, that restaurant was really good. Everyone really liked it. And now it's mm-hmm. just not there anymore. And especially because these businesses are usually on the smaller scale. And they're the ones who really, I guess, needed the money, needed people and foot traffic going in there. Like if, for example, Amazon had to shut down a warehouse, it's not a huge deal to them. But mm-hmm. if you have a if you have a restaurant chain and you have six locations and two of them have to get shut down because of this virus just permanently, that's a third of your revenue gone. And it's just, it's really devastating for small businesses. And like right now, starting a business seems incredibly difficult just because people are so focused on, I mean, the pandemic at hand. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think something that's more interesting to think about as well is that uh, a lot of these companies that you think would be doing well, so all these like Georgia Pacific, Procter & Gamble, things that make like toilet paper. And since we had such an outage of toilet paper, you'd think that they would be doing well. But you never think about how most of the volume of their products are from B2B, so business to business. So we're seeing a total like uh, macroeconomic effect of shifting entire businesses focus from B2B to B2C, where they're selling direct to you and me about this toilet paper. And that's just having great implications overall, just as a society, because you you would think that Georgia Pacific's doing well or Procter & Gamble's doing well, but in fact, like because McDonald's doesn't need as many napkins anymore, or uh, they're not even like, so your dentist office, like three months ago was closed, so they don't need any like toilet paper in their bathrooms. Like these things that no longer have any foot traffic through their restaurant are now like hurting things up the chain as well. Mm-hmm. So because we're having such a giant shift from like B to B to B to C, uh, we're seeing like a lot of pain in like the entire economy because of it. Yeah. And it's going to take like a while to like bounce back from this. Absolutely. Even speaking of from an economic perspective, is it a valid prediction that with the combination right of work from home and, and layoffs, just businesses being hurt, especially in hospitality, retail, dining. Does that establish the ground for automation? Do you guys think that we're we're here yet? It's of course this isn't you know COVID twenty twenty. It's not the turning point. I hope not. Um, but do you think it there is some breaking ground here? Are are people's gears turning? Companies who are looking to build robots or various automation forms is is now a good time, or is it even a time to pilot? What do you guys think on that? I mean, I would say that as a whole, the general idea is that automation will eventually become a point where we no longer need minimum wage jobs. And the idea of that is to allow like the creation of all this free time to be used in other aspects. But I mean, as a whole, and I think we're seeing this, like if you look at the stock market, if you look at our economy, the people who are benefiting the most out of this like economy are like the giant tech companies are like the richest. And the thing is that 
mm-hmm. I think we're seeing in the entire country is that we're the the poor and the middle class are being left behind almost. And I think that as a whole, I think big companies want to do automation because one, there's health safety. So because of this giant push, I think there is a more push for automation, but more selfishly, they see this as a way mm-hmm. to make even more money by not having to pay like general day laborers, right? If an entire warehouse of Amazon can be fully automated, I'm sure they would do it by now. So just like having deeper automation uh, and this economy is just kind of showing the emphasis of our entire economy being on these giant companies just becoming more and more efficient, which is making things like better for our overall lives. Like our quality of lives are better, but the people who can afford those nice things are now decreasing because of the automation. So it's like, even though that technically our stock market's going up. I think the overall income inequality is also deepening. Yeah, it's a good point. Cause like um, you keep, you kept seeing headlines over the summer and early fall, like, Oh, stock market at all time high stock markets booming. But the unemployment rate obviously was skyrocketing because of COVID because people were getting laid off and it just, the stock market was not a good depiction of what the economy was actually like. Um, and I think it, it kind of tricks a lot of people into thinking, oh, our economy is doing well right now. We can look at the stock market. But like David said, a lot of the time that just benefits the people who are at the top and are kind of propping that up. Yeah. So do you guys think that like maybe Amazon is having some a lot of secret projects right now on like researching that automation and is now the time to do that type of R&D? I think they've always been doing that type of R&D. I know for sure they've mm-hmm. been doing this R&D. I think that, um, if anything, this just shows to them that like it's definitely going to be like valuable for them to do this R&D. So I think, if anything, this is just driving home that like all their automation and everything is just going to make more sense in the long run. I think we're seeing that with all mm-hmm. sorts of autonomy across our entire lives. So I don't think, I think that COVID would just be like, just like, yeah, this is going to be great. Like, if we can't have workers in our factory due to COVID, let's just automate more things. Like, if anything, just like an accelerator. Yeah, just encouragement for them to keep on going the way they are. I, I agree with that. I think the only thing that would be an impediment to that is just the optics of the whole situation and what it looks like. Like, oh, here's a pandemic. It's a really tough time on everyone. This is a great opportunity for us to eliminate all these minimum wage jobs and just kind of automate everything. And I think that could have pretty big uh, political implications as well. Just so many low level, not low level, like low pay minimum wage workers losing their jobs, especially during a pandemic where it's harder mm-hmm. to find a job. I think it's the only, it would, it would be a bad look to say the least for these companies, but giant companies haven't really cared that much yeah. about, about how their ethical practices are coming across. But yeah. Yeah. So I kind of want to now switch gears regarding the whole, right? Work from home, we know, sucks for the economy, really sucks for the small businesses. Maybe there's one silver lining here. The fact that you can reduce your carbon footprint with the lack of this commute, right? The Corona commute is more green, questionably, compared to the traditional commute. So, but then there's also like this debating idea here that we're more green right now, but is there a delay in smart city infrastructure because we're not using that infrastructure, right? When we were using the infrastructure, everyone was like, oh, we got to do better. We got to do better. We got to do better. But now it's like, oh, we can just kind of take a chill pill in that space, right? We, pr- we predicted transportation roads businesses to evolve, have some sort of defenses against climate change, traffic and congestion. But now that we don't have this, we don't have rush hour. Yeah. Right. Will progress and innovation here be put on hold? And and if we even look at a concrete example of this, uh, we, t- we we looked at like Sidewalk Labs in our report. Uh, Sidewalk Labs is a, a Google initiative and project about making infrastructure in urban communities smarter, adding things like IoT, big data collection, AI, like, you know, adding all these kind of embedded emerging technologies within a city to delay congestion and make things better overall. But their Toronto-based project, Sidewalk Labs, has been canceled during COVID. So it makes me wonder, like, are, are we kind of halting uh, progress in this space with, with smart city infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that these smart city infrastructure are definitely on the back burner. And the thing about government is that 
we're, it's going to be a huge deficit at the end of this. So we're going to cut things that don't matter right now. And the thing that doesn't matter right now is definitely going to be like infrastructure. So we're definitely going to see great like loss in that mm-hmm. space, in my opinion. But I think what you brought up about being greener is that it's kind of like an oxymoron, in my opinion. So just as a little background, I've done a lot of work in plastic and like consumer products. And the thing about it is that even though that technically we're driving less, you have to think about what's the main pollutant in our society. Uh, There's such an emphasis on us as consumers to be like safe and recycle. But as a fact, recycling is like, I'm sure you've seen those numbers on the bottom of plastic containers, but for most consumers, that means nothing. So we don't have great education. Second off, there's not great infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So what's recyclable in Georgia isn't recyclable in, I don't know, California, for example. Things are touted as like, oh, they're biodegradable. Biodegradability is only a factor of heat. So they have to go to specific plants. So throwing away things that say they're biodegradable may or may not biodegrade based off their rating. There's a lot of things and a lot of misnomers out there that are marketed as being greener for the planet without actually being greener if they don't go to the right waste streams. And I think that with that, we're seeing like very low recycling. I think there is a number like 20% Mm -hmm. of all plastics are recycled. So now like when I go back to what I was talking about with the B2B to B2C, as a B2C, we wrap things up in smaller quantities, creating more packaging. So we're polluting the stream even more because they can't ship it in as an effective packaging. And on top of that, these giant companies that produce most of the waste aren't even changing anything that much, right? The factory is still going 24-7. If anything, it's only getting more productive due to the demand and increase. It's not like they're changing their habits. So I think that even though it is a positive sign that overall as a society, we're driving less, right? Um, I don't think it's going to be enough of a factor shift back to where Mm -hmm. we need to be to really make that much of a difference. I think it's great. I think it's a great start. I think all of us should live greener lives because like you have to spur the change you want to see. But I just think that it's a little ridiculous that we're like, oh, I like recycled five plastic bottles. This is so great. And then have it have you think that you're doing a great job, but in reality, it's not even being recycled, right? I just think there's so many misinformation and just not enough public awareness about recycling and the reduction of waste and that it's mostly on the big companies. And we're not hearing a lot about them decreasing it. Like, are they doing less shipping? So they're decreasing their emissions. We're hearing about the consumers. I think we've all been tricked that we're the largest change of growth when it's really just the bigger companies. I agree with that. I think it's a big distraction because like, I think so much of the reduction in emissions, like flights have been, I mean, the airline industry has been hit pretty hard because obviously people are not flying and airplanes are just gigantic pollutants. And when we see that, I I agree with you, David, it's kind of like, Oh, maybe it was our fault as a consumer, me flying places, you know, is, is, spurring climate change, global warming. And to an extent it is, but you're right that big companies that are having their factories operating 24 seven, and even more now as people turn to e-commerce a lot more and are buying more products um, because they're stuck at home. Like you see so many products just sold out on Amazon that hadn't been before, especially things like uh, exercise equipment, uh, even toilet paper was hard to find online at some point. The fact that people are ordering a lot more, so companies are shipping a lot more, packaging things a lot more, sending out trucks and delivery systems a lot more. It is, I think, a lot more from them creating that waste, creating those pollutants, creating the smog. But I think one thing that was funny about the whole like being greener was like, I think in China, when they first locked down, people were like, oh, we can see the stars for like the first time because there's so much less smog. Not saying that like, obviously this is making us, a COVID has made us greener, but that was just something funny to hear. Yeah. I guess one question I have for you, David, you're my one-stop shop of sustainability. So are those disposable masks recyclable? Yeah, so that's a great point, actually. So when you think about disposable masks, so just as a whole, COVID has spread through aerosol, like the aerosolization of water droplets that carry COVID. So the most yeah. effective masks have a polypropylene lining within the two different cloth 
linings. So that's like the most effective. So that's like your usual surgical mask. So the issue with polypropylene, again, like any plastic, it, any plastic is recyclable. They're just a bunch of polymeric chains that can be recycled in multiple different ways. But the thing is, they are expensive and we don't have the infrastructure everywhere. So when you think about masks, one, you probably think it's just trash. So people trash it. And that's the worst thing is that if you just trash something that's recyclable, that can be recycled, mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter if it's recyclable. So that's like an education. But like also like recycling is mm -hmm. a really tricky thing because you think recycling is like, oh, this amazing invention, we can recycle anything, right? But the thing about it is it can only take certain things. So if you think about it, I would have to remove the cloth linings and then I would have to put in the plastic, right? So I would have to somehow create a machine to do that, which just adds more costs and which would usually just be a non-starter, right? Unless we care uh, as a society enough about recycling and sustainability to foot the cost because the companies won't. We're never going to see change in that area. If it's too expensive, we're going to stop. Glass recycling, for example, stopped because it was too recycling, even though it's a generally easy thing to do. It's not something crazy that we don't know how to do. It just became too expensive for us to do. And so when I look at disposable masks, I would most likely think that the majority are not going to be recycled. And if they are, it's kind of a crapshoot whether the recycler would give enough of a care to actually put it through their machines. That's unfortunate. And I didn't know that actually. It's really like the more, you know, that's, my mind's kind of blown right now because our recycling bin just got replaced and with a new one and it says, uh, don't put glass in here. And I'm like, what? I, I used to always put glass in here. So it's too expensive. It doesn't make economic sense. There's so many parameters. So like the trickiest thing about glass is that you can only use the same color. So if I have like one brown bottle and I have like a thousand clear glasses, the entire thing's going to be brown. So like the separation. So anything that requires separation, usually manual in some aspect, anything that requires like specific heat treatments, anything yeah. that requires more steps to get into the final product is going to be expensive. The best thing that we can recycle is aluminum uh, because we can just melt it all and then just pour it back into the cast. And that's the easiest thing we can do. But everything else takes a lot of like separation, cleaning. So your plastic, so if you ever have a can of soda, if there's any soda in there, that could potentially damage any recycling product. So just like making sure you clean your bottles, everything like that makes recycling so much easier. But the thing is that not enough people know to do that, or if they even know to do that, they don't care, which makes recycling as a whole society mm -hmm. much harder than it needs to be. Yeah, the education thing is, very big just people not knowing what can and can't be recycled like you, the way you're saying earlier about the numbers on the bottom of bottles i had no idea what that meant until i took a literal polymers class as part of like a degree and i feel like you shouldn't need to take an advanced college level course to know can i put this in a this bin or will it destroy the rest of the uh the recycling process and also yeah people just don't care like our apartment building didn't have recycling bins until a week ago, even though they, they opened the building a couple months ago. And so everything that was could have been recycled just going into the trash because wow. people didn't have an accessible place to put it. So yeah, wow, that is absolutely crazy to think that like, now I'm starting to think this pandemic is we're doing the opposite of green stuff. Like we have much more maybe more waste at home. Winter's coming. So you got to do that. Get all the heat get all the heat you can maybe not maybe the earth will just heat us naturally uh I, I have seen some like cool things during the pandemic where people are biking again people are biking more often some cities they have like closed streets to accommodate more pedestrians and cyclists like oakland or new york city so that that stuff's kind of neat and you know, and maybe when we have reopenings or, you know, we have reopenings now, but maybe as reopenings increase, we go back to bird and lime. Uh, maybe they'll start seeing more increased demand uh, as we encourage social distancing. Mm -hmm. I think this time of pandemic should be a reflection more than anything else. Like, let's build back. Oh, my God, I'm going to sound like a Biden spokesperson. Let's build back better. <laughs> like, this could be a time where we reimagine what our cities, what our communities would look like. I hope so. I hope that is the case. I hope there are city planners <laughs> who are just doing due diligence right now, researching, reimagining, brainstorming. Like I want them to plan as well as we can for the future. I know a lot of people like when I was back home using bike trails and parks a lot more, which was nice to see. The only problem was since it was like 
so many more people than they usually get. It was very crowded, which kind of sucks, but I guess that can be a push for more parks, more trails, generally more outdoor activities if people want them. Yeah. It must be so annoying for people who like regularly ride their bikes and now like, they're like, who are you people? <laughs> Everyone's doing yeah. it. So I guess if we look overall, it sucks with COVID nonsense because we have lost jobs, lost green initiatives, right? Energy efficient buildings, that's thrown out the window. So are smart disposable chains and thermal grids using renewables. And just overall, right now, there's also a lack of data collection on energy use and road utilization. Yeah. So we'll have to kind of reflect that on all data models going forward that, oh, this was this time is an anomaly because we we have less like road usage. But that's because of COVID. It's not because people, like you say, are being green. And and if you look at historically the average uh, share of commuters who drive alone, it's it's decreased over the years. But this might go back up again after COVID, right? Maybe people aren't gonna carpool as much mm -hmm. anymore. It's it's gonna be there's risks involved in that now. So yeah, even taking an Uber. Have you guys taken an Uber yet during? COVID, no. No, <laughs> me either. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> something, to, something to check off. It just seems, I don't know, an unnecessary risk getting into a car with someone you don't know. Yeah. And just like, what are their habits? Where have they been? Obviously, they've been driving other people around. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely a hit on Uber. And I know Uber laid off a lot of people when the pandemic first started, mm -hmm. especially like a couple of my friends were going to work there and then they lost their jobs before they could even start working. Yeah, that's, again, like super heartbreaking. You don't realize until it happens. Like yeah. so many things are interconnected and interdependent. We have this whole cause and effect dependency chains. And I guess now you can draw it all out. But before then, it didn't even hit you. When you talk about jobs and jobs being lost yeah. and, and the digitalness of everything now, if you look at the digital divide, right, which is the overall like idea that it's not even an idea, it, it's a thing. There's uneven distribution of internet and smart device adoption across the US, right? It, the distribution of this is uneven and, and that leads to a digital divide. So do you guys think that during COVID, will the digital divide improve? We have like schools who are pouring a lot of money into digital infrastructure but at the same time, it's like a matter of are people going ahead and there's other people going behind in this. So I guess my question to you all is, is the digital divide going to get better or worse during COVID? The effect of the digital divide is that like it's so reliant on the technology you have and are able to get. If you get like for schools, with example, when they sent everyone home, a lot of kids just didn't have as good access to technology like a computer with a good webcam, good uh, good mic, audio quality. And maybe their their family can't afford like high quality, high speed internet. So in that case, I think it makes the experience a lot worse for people who didn't already have access to that technology. Yeah, so I think it it could make it worse. I think because it's not going to magically allow people to have more money and access to better better laptops, better cameras, and things like that. Yeah, I agree with that, especially when you think about the basically the home dynamic. If we think about like first through 12th, right? Yeah, I had a, but we only had one family computer. Mm -hmm. How exactly is that supposed to work? And it's not like we're like, oh, you have to buy me another computer so I yeah. can get education. That's kind of a impossible ask, especially for people of the lower income. So it's just kind of ridiculous, especially if you think about oh, I know people who share rooms with their brother or sister. There could be no potential place where you can be set up be alone, have your computer, and go to class at the same time. It's like a super easy concept for people mm -hmm. uh, who have enough income to afford like computers for everybody. Everybody has their own room, like no problem there. It's just just increasingly unequal as we go down the income chain, uh, unless like some radical bill like helps fund a lot of internet access and even internet literacy. Right? I know how to use the computer because I had a computer growing up. But coming from someone who might not have even used a computer growing up, how are they supposed to know how to type? Is it fair for them to write a 500 page, or 500 word essay uh, in a block of time uh, compared to like a student who already knew how to type? The internet literacy is so unequal as it is, but no one thinks about it because 
everyone who knows how to use a computer uses a computer, and those are the people you work with, especially at like really high-end jobs. So you don't see it, so you don't think it's an issue when it is. Yeah. And I just think that they're not receiving enough help either from the government or from other places uh, to like really catch up. So I think it's extremely unequal as is. I think, yeah, I think the pandemic has made the disconnect so much more visible. Like even not just technology, like David, you were saying earlier, people having to share rooms and not having an individual space to like attend class or meetings. I know that a lot of Harvard students were asking Harvard, hey, can you like at least let us live on campus? Because, you know, I can't, I just don't have any space at home to be alone um, because it's just such a small space. And Harvard, like the disconnect there was so obvious because they told their students, okay, why don't you just like rent some office space so you can attend class? And it was like, are are you kidding? Like the people who are asking to live on campus are doing that because they they don't have the resources to go anywhere else. And you're telling them to rent office space just so they can attend their classes. And it's it's really ridiculous. I think even if the digital divide doesn't get worse, the effects of the digital divide and of the lowered internet literacy make it a lot worse for people and their quality of life if they don't have the access to that technology or the income necessary for it. Yeah. So just to like, uh, for context for listeners here, 15% of American U.S. households lack access to high-speed internet. And on top of that, 52% of U.S. adults either lack trust in the internet or they have a low technology literacy and digital skills. So they don't really turn to the internet as a source. Whereas like, if you look at maybe not U.S. adults, but like kids living in high-income areas, the first thing that they do is, you know, look something up on their phone, on their smartphone. Like for us, it's like, within hand's reach. But for some people, they just don't turn to the internet. And it's just blows my mind to think that we have all this pace of internet and technology, but half the country just isn't connected like the other half. And and that's that's literally what the digital divide is all about. It, when you talk about like schools receiving funding uh, during this time regarding conducting learning and their operations digitally, there are actually some ISPs, Comcast, I know is one of them, and I think T-Mobile starting as well. They're not ISP, but they are a phone provider. But they're starting to have discounted rates for students and low-income families. And then school, certain school districts, again, these are the more ones that are better funded. Uh, they're supplying Chromebooks and paying for internet for their students. And again, these are students usually from low-income families. So the overall like education environment is so different. You guys mentioned it right off the bat, like low-income families, they can't really have the desks, the chairs, the two monitors set up for your kids. And yeah, kids are sharing rooms. That's a reality that we face. And that's not something that's going to change overnight. And this really has an overall impact on online participation, attention span. If you have to do your work with another person in uh, in the room with you, either in the dining room, the living room, you know, maybe you're, everyone's doing like their own things and it's hard to focus. There are some initiatives I looked into. Uh, certain cities, they have digital equity offices. I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that, that something like that exists. But if you look at cities like Boston, they're expanding their, their fiber optic networks and they're expanding free Wi-Fi points. Again, this is going to be more for the city and not really the suburban areas. But uh, North Carolina, they're funding, um, they're awarding funding for competing uh, ISPs that expand to rural areas. So that's really cool. And then New Orleans has a device donation program. So who upgrade their iPhones every single year, they can donate their devices unless they don't want to flip them. I hope they choose to donate. And then uh, cities like Seattle and and Louisville, they're expanding community programs that build uh, digital skills like workshops and classes that uh, people in the community can take. So these are all steps in the right direction. But Again, in this time, how ironic is it if you had to log on to a computer to take a digital skills class? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that stat, the, what is it, like the 52% of adults don't turn to the internet as a resource? That, that's really mind-blowing to me. Like, imagine being a kid having those kinds of parents that are just technologically illiterate and just having no help when you obviously need to be doing stuff digital right now. Yeah, I think the bigger thing is that, especially for a young kid, uh, anything they see on the internet, they're going to assume is true. And I think it's taken me years to understand like how to critically assess whether 
a website is like credible or not with this new generation yeah. if their parents or their education ever teaches them how do i fact check a source how do i know this is real how do i like cite things then like we have no idea what ideas can become mainstream i think we've seen this with misinformation is that people see it online and they're like oh it's online it has to be true and i think that's generally not the case misinformation with covid especially like about the virus this goes back to like the inequality the digital divide the people who know how to use computers and know like, oh, this is obviously fake, obviously look down at people who don't know. And the issue is that it's not anything because of like who they are. It's that we got very different experiences growing up and that digital divide will never fully be bridged because like there's just not enough emphasis on education for the lower class. If I were to like design a high school class, you have to take this before you enter the working world. It's like financial literacy, internet literacy, green sustainable literacy. Like these are the things people should be learning about. And I and you see it on Twitter all the time. Like, why do I know mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell? Why do I know that? <laughs> it's things like that. I really hope these ideas for the people who are stepping into the education space, you know, young people aspiring to be teachers, educators, I hope they take these thoughts into mind when developing what the education for the new generation looks like, because it's it's such a priority. I wish more people spoke up about it and, and emphasized it. I can't agree more with you guys on we need more internet literacy. And so kind of like my final question slash prediction is, are we going to, you know, the million dollar question, are we going to have an awkward subset of Gen X kids because they spent this critical time of personal growth and learning online and remotely? Yeah. So I guess for your first question, I think personally, uh, the largest era of growth in myself, just like personal growth, whether it's like learning new skills or meeting new people or finding out who I am as a person happened in that first year of college. So when you think about it, like now that you're completely removing that from a person's experience, because I only found those experiences because I talked to other people. I only talked to those people because they're in my classes. I only went to class because uh, like it was in person and I thought it would be valuable for me to go to. So it's like a long chain line effect where the people who are really motivated are still going to get it done. I have no doubt in my mind. But people who are more like either don't know where to go, don't know where to look, those people are going to be left behind because like usually you would be able to talk to people in person. But like now in my class, if like I was a freshman, there's no way I would have like the like audacity or the gall to like go up and be like, hey, like I'm David in front of 40 other people, right? It's just not going to happen. And I think because of that, I, I feel like a lot of people grow in college because they see other people grow and they don't want to be left behind. So I feel like just either people are going to stagnate uh, because they aren't like having anybody push them almost. But I still think that like if people really want to get things done, the internet's not going to stop them. And I think that the internet's a great tool and something I learned a lot from. So it's not like, oh, it's the end of the world. I'm never going to learn anything. It's just you need more motivation to do it than if you're in person, in my opinion. Yeah, I think especially for freshmen right now, the mental health aspect of it is going to be it can make it a lot worse. I think, especially if you're going into a new school in a new area that you don't know anybody, uh, you've never lived in that city before. And now the opportunities to meet people and make friends are so much lower. And I think David's right that like people who are really motivated, who are very extroverted, trying to meet people all the time, will find a way to do it. But if you're a more like naturally shy individual, and just removing all potential, not all, but like a lot of potential avenues for meeting other people, like I know it's not feasible for a lot of clubs to meet. It's not feasible to have events like we did in freshman year, like, oh, we're all going to watch a movie in the lounge right now, things like that. And just being lonely in your freshman year is definitely something that I think would be not great for people's mental health when the only thing you're doing is studying and having that stress and not having the release of doing fun things with your friends, going places. And it's such a formative time in your life, like David was saying. And I don't know about... I mean, it could make kids awkward, but I think even worse than that, I think rates of depression and things like mental illness is definitely going to be exacerbated by the lack of interaction. I know some people love it, just like not talking to people, but at a base level, you do need some some socializing. Yeah, we are social creatures. It's very human to interact and get together and like, it, it's in our nature. 
It's basically just getting rid of the entire support system because you don't meet any new people, which is awful. Um, but on to your other question, I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to affect them. And I think that it could affect people, but honestly, it might help them succeed in the future. Just like how to interact with people on the internet, like it could set them up for the future work, right? Just like introducing them to something so young, just like how old people, uh, they tend to struggle so much, but you can give like a two-year-old an iPad and they'll know how to use YouTube, right? It's just like, because we're introducing technology to them so young, potentially it's not even a bad thing. I think it could be a bad thing for social skills as they don't get to like learn like, oh, I shouldn't like do X, Y, Z when other people are around, right? So they might like hamper on that. But I don't think that like potentially having them introduced to like technology and more professional or like more educational type of method is necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the internet is so exploratory. I primarily used a computer a lot as a kid. Windows 95, OG. Yeah. <laughs> I just was on that thing every single day. And I think it really accelerated my reading skills, typing skills, like you mentioned. Like, But you definitely need that environment where you have a computer with access, internet access. Do you guys have any other like thoughts, things you want to mention about this whole situation that's going on? And like, any other things you think about, things that keep you up at night, thoughts? I don't know. Uh, when it does end, if it does end, I don't know. And when that'll be, what the world and the workforce will look like is so unknown. Are we going to keep having people work from home? Because like a lot of jobs, you don't you don't need to go into the office and people are realizing that now. Uh, is it going to create more jobs because people can work from home or is it going to create less jobs because companies are just going to hire fewer people? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think the, the uncertainty of it all, like, first of all, what's it going to look like when it ends? And second of all, when will it end? Because there's so much conflicting information on vaccines and stuff like that. And I think it'll, I think it'll only really stop when we get a viable vaccine that can be distributed to people equally. But just the uncertainty of it all is kind of scary to think about. Um, And it's really just easier not to think about it at all, which is, I guess, a bad thing. But that's like the one thing looming over everything. Yeah, we're in limbo. That's what it is. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to go back to the same type of life. But I think more importantly is that people think that the biggest hill is getting over COVID. And I think that we're not looking far enough ahead. I think that months and months and months of complacency due to the COVID situation has absolutely financially ruined over half the country. I think that we're going to see like a recession after this. So depending on whoever gets elected and what their plan is, it's going to be a really rough couple of years afterwards, just because we've lost so much capital and the government has put, has gotten to such a large deficit to try to like combat it. And even at that, they didn't even go all the way. So right now, I think we're in like that midpoint where like, oh, they're kind of trying, like they gave out those checks, but like people are still suffering. So I think just like overall, COVID is an issue, but I think there's bigger issues on the horizon. So just gotta keep on going and start thinking ahead more than just the next issue i think to really solve them we need to be thinking about yeah once we solve covid exactly what's going to happen and how can we start putting into action uh like some of these plans now like at least working on like legislative pieces to like figure out how we can solve them absolutely i'm sure you guys also like me and also like so many other people right now had so many cool plans for 2020 you know you're like, oh, it's an even year. You know, it's an even year and a leap year. You know, you feel good about those even years. Like, y'all remember like summer 2016? <laughs> what, what a nice yeah, summer, you know? Yeah. Just the traveling plans, especially because this was going to be like the last um, summer break you have. Yeah, this last summer of no, right? yeah. or, well, little to no obligations. And it's kind of just taken from you in, in the grand scheme of things is not not that big of a deal when people are, you know, dying of a respiratory illnesses but like it just it just kind of sucked there's no point like of going back to way things were right we have so much room for improvement but are we i would argue that we're in the same place as we were before i don't i don't know if we are yeah but i think that we could have i think we knew all this before i think that any educated medical professional already knew this i think that it's been a great mistake by the current administration 
not to give more emphasis Mm -hmm. and to kind of pander to the people who don't think it's real. Because I think that not only are they hurting themselves, but they're delaying the like recovery because we are seeing a giant second wave, right? And if we look at the data, like we're seeing like the first wave was obviously urban like distribution center. So that would be like a lot more democratic states. But now in this like second or third wave, whatever you want to call it, the highest infection rates and the highest mortality rates are those in the Republican or the people who voted for Trump, which is like theorized to be the people who are like the most anti-mask. And I think that that's where we're seeing like a lot more deaths. I think that we knew this information eight months ago. We knew it yesterday. So I feel like you saying that we know like how to do these things isn't really valid if the people in charge are going to be like, no, you don't need to do those, right? Or not even like push it to the people. People are just not taking it seriously. People haven't been taking it seriously since it started. I mean, even I didn't take it seriously until like school became virtual. I was like, oh, okay, this is like a a legitimate problem now. I mean, that's the case for way too many people. It's not something they take seriously until it affects them. You see so many things where like, oh, this person, like a pastor or something who preaches um, about the virus being fake, like passes away from coronavirus. And then people in that community are taking it seriously. And it's just so ridiculous that people aren't. And David's right. I mean, it comes from higher up, the fact that they knew about it in December, in January, when it was a thing in Wuhan. And from what it looks like, obviously, we're not on the inside. We don't know what their decision-making process was. The fact that nothing happened, the fact that they didn't try to, you know, like at least cut off or restrict travel, or at least prepare in any way for the pandemic, we just kind of let it hit us. I mean, annoying, to Mm -hmm. say the least. Yeah, we we were literally gaslighted. (laughs) That's what it feels like. We were all... Yeah. Everyone has gone through gaslighting in 2020. Yeah, go vote if you're listening to this. Uh (laughs) Yeah, that's a perfect message. Yeah, to close off this episode. So thank you, David and Pranav, for taking time to talk and discuss and just be unfiltered. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having us. So from this conversation and events that have occurred ever since, it's clear that technological change means that working from home won't disappear when the virus does. And with creative thinking, strategic planning and investment, we can rise up to the challenge of a post-COVID commute and life that's both smart, sustainable, and safe. So let's take this time to focus on progress and take steps in the right direction for future generations. It would be awful to take backward steps with all the initiatives supporting the environment and communities, and we can only hope that we're living in the worst version of the remote working period, because we know tech-based services and tools will strive to make remote work as realistic as possible. And it's important to do your due diligence in reducing the digital divide. Say that five times fast. Um, But building coalitions, adjusting communication techniques, and developing new statistical evidence can all accelerate trust between key actors, educate on the social impact technologies can deliver, and create opportunities to design new solutions. I hope this conversation that you just heard was somewhat relatable. Maybe you've had it with a coworker, family, or friends, but we are all in this together, and that's the most uniting thing about this. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you have any questions, feedback, topic ideas, or just want to say hi, feel free to tweet or message me at NikitaRajput underscore. I hope you are all staying safe and healthy during this time. Mask up and take care.